Coming to you via the internet and your friends at PipesMagazine.com, it's the Pipes Magazine Radio Show. The show with the host that is sometimes reflective, but enjoys being empty and shallow. Now, I invite you to sit back, relax, the smoking lamp is lit. Here's your host, Brian Levine. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Pipes Magazine radio show. Yes, the sometimes irreverent, sometimes educational, but always entertaining weekly pipe smoking broadcast. And I am your host, Brian Levine, coming to you uh, three weeks and one day away from leaving for Chicago. Heading out on the Wednesday before the show. Uh, on this week's show, in Pipe Parts, we've got a Ask the Blender with uh, Jeremy Reeves. And then my guest is another Fred, not the not the Fred we've been hearing a lot from, but this one is Fred Janusik. Fred is a doctor of pipes, a professor of mathematics, and uh, Fred's in his early 80s and has been smoking a pipe, oh, all the way back to college. So I sat down and recorded what I'm going to call uh, Story Times with Fred Janusik. So we get the first installment of that this week. Uh, music, mailbag, and rant, all that coming up on this week's episode of the Pipes Magazine radio show. Uh, next week, next week's show, stay tuned, I got an announcement. Yeah, and it and it's a good one. So just make sure you listen next week. Well, make sure you listen every week, but uh, next week in particular, you're going to want to hear the announcement. Uh JDRF auction items, please keep sending me emails. Email me Brian at pipesmagazine.com. I know it's been uh, it's been kind of light, honestly, so would really appreciate those. I would like to have all the items in my hands before uh, May 20th before I leave for Chicago. I would greatly appreciate that and then I'll gather them all here and get them off to uh, Steve Fallon, the pipe stud for selling on his site and on eBay. So whatever you can send, greatly appreciated. All right, we got a big show, so let's get the show rolling. Everybody sit back, relax, fire up a bowl. Thank you all for tuning in, and here we go. This is Phil Morgan, General Manager of Missouri Meerschaum Corn Cob Pipes in Washington, Missouri. Our mission since 1869 has been to produce great smoking pipes that anyone can afford. We guarantee our pipes won't be your most expensive, but they just might be the ones you smoke the most. At Missouri Meerschaum Company, we don't just sell our corn cob pipes. We grow them, make them, and smoke them. Missouri Meerschaum, Washington, Missouri, since 1869. We are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show for another edition of Ask the Blender with Jeremy Reeves, the head blender, master guru, uh, grand poobah of Cornell and Deal tobaccos and GLP's tobaccos, although you just put them together for Greg. So if Greg, you're listening, I, I didn't say anything. Uh, Jeremy, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Uh, what other brands do you guys make in there besides Cornell and Deal and GLPs? Sure. Uh, so we make uh, Briarworks. Yep. Um, we make Low Country for for smoking pipes. Um, we make. Let's see. We we make Warped. We make Captain Earls. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and you guys are also canning up the. Uh, are you guys? Are you guys canning the uh, Kramer's tobaccos? We do package those, but we're not blending the tobaccos. Yep, because I know the secret blends, and I can't tell anybody. Uh, right. All right. Well, here's your here's your question because you've got uh, a whole bunch of tobaccos to base this off of. Uh, but Glenn asks. Uh, Brian, can you have Jeremy expound on Doddle? I've experienced that around two-thirds or three-quarters of the way through a bowl of tobacco, the flavor profile changes noticeably, usually to what I would describe as somewhat sour. At that point, I put my pipe aside and call it quits. 
I hear people talk about smoking a bowl to a fine white ash. That is never my experience. On the bright side, I've never charred the air hole in the bottom of a pipe. All right. So, Jeremy, uh, what's it, What's his problem with uh, leaving a little bit of dawdle at the bottom or getting muddy at the bottom? Sure. Um, it sounds like a problem that is probably caused either by moisture in the tobacco, by packing too tightly, tamping too hard, or puffing too hard, or some combination of those those variables, or all uh, of, yeah, or all of the above. Right. So, I would recommend a few things. One, I would recommend um, giving whatever tobacco you're smoking a little bit of time to lose a little bit of the moisture that is in it. I'm not talking about uh, bone dry. Um, I, I think that drying to a crisp is too much um, because you want some moisture in there to help uh, create the kind of pillowy, soft, thick cloud of smoke that's going to give you a lot of flavor. And also because you don't want to lose any of the flavonoids and oils that are, that are residual in that tobacco. And when you dry stuff down to a crisp, you start losing that stuff. Um, so you're actually, you're actually mitigating some flavor, uh, when, when you do that, you're dampening your flavor. Uh, so I recommend getting, getting a little dish, putting about a pipe full of the tobacco that you plan to smoke into the dish and letting it sit for, let's say about five to 10 minutes. Um, and occasionally just kind of run your fingers through it, like picking the whole pile up and then gently trickling it back down out of your hand onto the plate again. And that will help to aerate it a little bit, and that will help to suss out flavor on down the road when you're smoking. Um, after about five or ten minutes, most tobaccos are going to perform better in a pipe. Um, even if there is still moisture there, you've lost a little bit, and that's going to help you at this next step. If you are smoking flake, I really recommend taking this approach and, and thinking about it from a standpoint of how do you build a fire? Because that's what you're doing in your pipe. You are putting together, uh, you're putting together a series of pieces of something that you want to burn and burn consistently from top to bottom. And so starting off with a little bit of kindling and then packing your logs on and then packing more kindling on top is going to be the way that you would build a fire that is going to burn really consistently and going to consume the entire the entire structure at a sustained rate so that you can time adding more more logs if you're building a fire obviously with a pipe you're not adding more as you burn but you want it to perform from top to bottom so i like to take my flake and rub it out entirely, and I do this over a plate so that I can begin to notice when things are, are breaking up into fines, and I can start picking up the whole pile and just letting the fines fall through and then putting the whole pile of the thicker stuff over on one side. So you're going to take a, a pinch or two of your fines, and that's the first thing that's going to go into your pipe, and leave it, leave it loose. Leave it, leave it. You know, don't don't press it down in there. Just let it kind of hang out um, and be a little pillowy and a little soft. But you've got smaller pieces down there that are going to help when you get down to that part of the bowl, actually consuming the remaining tobacco that's there. Then put some of your coarser chunks into your pipe and gravity feed your pipe to where it looks like it needs a haircut. It's it's a little shaggy looking on top. After it looks that way, like your pipe needs a haircut, then gently compress the tobacco until you just begin to get some resistance. This flies in the face of the, the three-pack three method where you're, you know, pressing it uh, looser and then firmer and then firmer, um, but bear with me. So barely any resistance and you stop 
uh, you stop pressing and you're going to put a little more of the coarse stuff and then some fine stuff on top. And again, press it down just until you begin to feel resistance, just a little more resistance than you allowed the last time. And then finish off with your finer pieces again. And so you've got kindling on top, you've got a mingling of, of, of thinner stuff and thicker stuff in the middle, and then you've got thinner stuff at the bottom. Um, that right there, just the steps of drying and then the way that you approach the coarseness of the tobacco as you fill your pipe are probably going to get you most of the way there to being able to actually enjoy the flavor that you're getting when you get to that two, two-thirds level in your bowl. I've actually never heard that described that way, and that was perfectly described because you do need some of those little pieces at the bottom to ignite easily as mm-hmm. you as you get down there. Uh, the only other thing I would mention is make sure and keep a pipe cleaner handy and you know run it up the stem, and that'll help get some of that moisture out of the bottom too. Uh, Absolutely. The other thing that it does is if you're if you're an aggressive tamper tamperer. How do you say that? Yeah, if you're an aggressive, <laughs> if you if you tamp aggressively, um, and sometimes I do, especially when I'm driving, uh, by putting the pipe cleaner in there, it gets some air back into the bottom of the bowl. It mm-hmm. pushes the tobacco back up, which helps the airflow and the and the smoke work, uh, and the and the smoke come through it better. Um, but yeah, that that was that was perfect. Um, he mentioned in there about uh, the flavor profile changing dramatically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, you know, sometimes I kind of like that in a bowl where the, you know, the halfway through it, it starts, to, it develops a different flavor or, you know, gets a little richer or whatever it is. It, it changes somehow. Right. Uh, but, but that's, he said that the flavor he was getting was unpleasant and yeah. sour. And that, that sourness tells me that it's moisture related. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you've ever made the mistake at a college party of grabbing a glass and taking a big swig out of it and then realizing somebody put their cigarette out in it. <laughs> I thought you were going for bong water, but I wasn't going to say that on the, on the show. <laughs> uh, but then you did say it on the show. I did, uh, Not uh, yet, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you've ever had that experience... Um, or if you've ever had the experience of smoking tobacco that was just too wet and getting some of that juice actually up the stem and into your mouth, it's really, really sour. Um, if you're getting that sour taste, that tells me that part of the problem is moisture building up too quickly in the bowl as you're smoking. And you can mitigate that by slowing your cadence you can mitigate that by not packing so tightly so that you don't have moisture that's in the tobacco that is burning actually condensing into the tobacco that is not yet lit. And if you just kind of slow your cadence and don't pack so tightly, that will help. Um, adding to your regimen a little bit of airtime before you pack your pipe and then adding that step of kindling on the bottom and kindling on the top and your coarse pieces mixed with a little bit of kindling in the middle. That should all work to getting you a consistently drier smoke that will give you a flavor build that doesn't just turn sour once you've, once you've reached the point of moisture saturation in the bowl, which is about the two-thirds point, it sounds like, for you. Instead of that unpleasant flavor build, you'll have a more gradual flavor build that, as Brian just said, is just getting richer and developing some depth. Yeah. And and then the other thing that I'll admit is I very rarely am able to smoke all the way to the bottom of a bowl. I you know, I don't know. Right. I think that I think that there are way more people that say, Oh yeah, it burned down to a fine white ash than actually if you looked at the results of their smoke my guess would be that you're still going to find some dottle in what they cleared out from the pipe. There's always going to be a little bit of unconsumed tobacco uh, because if you're really smoking down to just fine white ash, then the last puff presumably is going to be a mouthful of fine white ash. (laughs) I've had that before and it doesn't taste real good either. So (laughs) yeah, but it also does taste a little sour. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it makes you want to brush your teeth pretty quick. Uh, Jer- yes. Yep. 
Jeremy, thanks for thanks for coming on again. Oh, thank you so much, Brian. And we'll be back in just a minute. This is Internet Radio. Since its beginnings in 1876, Savinelli has become more than just a pipe factory. It's become a lifestyle. From sourcing the finest Mediterranean briar and partnering with local artisans to acquire unique accents, to expanding their catalog each year with new innovative series, Savinelli produces high-quality Italian pipes that serve as a reflection of your individual tastes. With a portfolio that ranges from rugged designs fit for the outdoors to elegant pieces destined for black tie galas, Savinelli is more than a mark. They're a way to help you make your mark. And we are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show, and here goes installment number one of Story Times with Fred Janusik. All right, first of all, let, let's just start off at the beginning. Um, what year was it that you started smoking a pipe? Okay, well, it's probably before a lot of your listeners were even born. <laughs> Uh, goes back to 1957 when I was a senior in high school and was watching TV and saw all these guys with pipes that looked pretty cool and thought maybe going off to college I should give that a try. So I saved up and went down to the local drugstore and spent, I believe, two ninety-five for a yellow bowl pipe. Wow. It was a great... Uh, well, I, oval billiard. And when I say oval, I mean oval. Even the inner bowl was oval shaped to such an extent that you could not get a tamper inside the bowl. <laughs> I'm not sure how I smoked it, but that's the way it was. But it sure looked neat. It had about uh, 100 layers of lacquer on it <laughs> to make sure that it never, never let anything never let the pipe breathe that's for sure and a soft rubber bit which i chewed to uh almost nothing <laughs> but anyway that was my start that and some uh drugstore tobacco probably cherry blend or edward g robinson or prince albert or god knows all the other things they had there i went through all of them uh, burning my tongue away <laughs> but kept at it for couple of years at least and then it kind of died out and went away and then in 1967 the fall of 67 I was now then married with two young children and teaching mathematics at Northern Illinois University in DeKalb, Illinois one day while walking downtown I walked by a men's clothing store and in the window was a little packet uh, with three tins in it and a plastic cover, three tins of Dunhill tobacco. Ooh. Uh, one of them was uh, 965, I believe. The other was standard mixture, and the other was a very colorful royal yacht. <laughs> and propped up against it was a neat-looking little pipe, uh, black sandblast with... Uh, uh, a smooth panel on each side of the bowl and a really neat looking Danish style bit. So overall it was quite appealing. It was by Stanwell and it was quite expensive for those times at $10. Yeah. I believe the tobacco was another $3, but I said, what the heck, let's go for it. And I bought it and took it home and gave it a try. And I have to admit, it was much better than the yellow bowl with uh, <laughs> Prince Albert or something. <laughs> but at the time, then, I started remembering back to my college days. And we went, I remember going down to Chicago and going to some pipe shops there, including Ewan Rees. And I thought, well, if I want to you know, look at a lot of pipes and a variety of tobaccos, I should probably go back there. And so I did. <laughs> and there I was introduced to many other names like Sheraton and Sassini and Savinelli 
and uh, whatever, GVD, and also some very, very expensive straight cranes that uh, were way out of my price range. But I picked up a few tobaccos and remember buying a Savinelli straight grain C. That's letter C stamped on it. It was a beautiful, fairly good-sized Lavat. And I had more comments on that pipe and how pretty it was over the years than probably just about any other one I've had. <laughs> the reason that it was <laughs> affordable to me at that time is because it was only $15. And the reason it was $15 is because if you happen to turn it over and look at the bottom of the bowl, there were seven big, ugly fills in it. <laughs> but when you were smoking it, they didn't show up at all. So that didn't bother me. Yeah. So I enjoyed that pipe. And while I was there, I unfortunately picked up one of their catalogs, uh -oh. the 1968 Reed catalog. Yeah. On the cover were two Danish straight grains, one by Sixten Everson <laughs> and... Uh, the other one was, uh, I can't remember the other name, but they were $500 a piece, which was almost a month's salary for me at that time. Yeah, I mean, that, was so the, thought, that was basically the price of, a, of an average car. Yes, yes, yeah. $500 for one pipe. Yeah, I want to. I want to back up. I, I just want to back up a minute here because I want to talk about that men's store the men's clothing store where you bought the, where you bought the Stanwell. Uh, I mean, it was common in the 1960s for a department store or a men's clothing store to also feature pipes and tobaccos and even sell cigars in them. Right. Oh yes. As a matter of fact, Marshall Fields had a big department, a big part of their men's department uh, donated to pipes and tobacco, including very high grades like Dunhill's and even Eberson's. Yeah, at the one in Chicago. So it, so that wasn't field. that wasn't just a rare occurrence that you'd walk by a, a men's uh, no. might be might have even been called like a haberdashery, uh, and yeah. and see all that stuff in the window because I mean pipes and pipes and cigar stuff were sold anywhere and everywhere. Right. Yeah. All right. Go yes, back to go. I, let's it, go back to Ewan Reese and you spending five hundred. I wasn't. I didn't go there looking for it, but you're right. It was. It was common, as I noticed after that. Yeah. So after picking up the '67, '68 actually catalog in 1967, they let let it out in the fall, and taking that home, the slide began. <laughs> uh, the slide, as we call it, into. Uh, T-A-D. Yeah. <laughs> I think, isn't that what we call it? Yeah. I know. P-A-D. Pipe Acquisition Disorder. <laughs> where all of a sudden you're overtaken by the urge to get a new pipe. <laughs> and looking through that catalog, I got that feeling many times. There were fantastically beautiful pipes in there. Dunhill, Sheridan, Sassini, Four Dots, uh, everything you can think of. And so I made many trips over the next year before we left there to Iwan Rees and padded my collection considerably. <laughs> when I bought my first Anwell there, I also bought a little pipe rack that held 12 pipes, six on each side. And I said to myself, uh, after buying another two, I think I had three of them, I said, wow, if I ever get to the point where I fill that rack with 12 pipes, I'll have enough pipes for life. <laughs> um, <laughs> I say that now that I own thousands of pipes <laughs> yeah. over the years. But at that time, I thought 12 pipes was a lot of pipes. So anyway, at the end of 68, uh, we moved to Oshkosh, Wisconsin, where I was teaching at the University of Wisconsin, Oshkosh. Oshkosh is a very pretty town on Lake Winnebago. But they didn't have any pipe shops. <laughs> but we're only an hour away from Milwaukee. And fortunately, Loretta's parents lived in Menominee Falls, a suburb there, 
so I had a place to go on weekends where the, she and the kids could visit with the grandparents, and I could sneak off for three or four hours to a, one of the pipe shops in Milwaukee. <laughs> uh, the three big ones were Yulee's, of course, downtown, still there. And then Edwards on Silver Spring Drive in Glendale, I believe. And the other was called Cusky's Sunset Pipe Shop. And that was out on Route 41 going to Chicago, just off that. I don't remember the town. But that was probably the favorite gathering place for uh, pipe collectors. On Saturday morning, you'd go in there, and there would be six or seven or eight of us standing around or sitting on chairs uh, discussing pipes, showing pipes, and so on. And that's where I met two very important people in my life, as it turned out. One of them was Bob Havens, and the other was Ed Jakevich. Oh, yeah. And I also met a doctor from Cuba there who <laughs> was written up later on. But anyway, getting back to Bob and, and Ed. Yeah. Bob Havens uh, decided to come out with a newsletter selling used pipes. And I said, where are you going to get them? He said, I'll advertise in men's magazine. I said, you're crazy. <laughs> well, as it turned out, he wasn't crazy. He started getting in boxes of pipes. And some of them had some really high-quality pipes. You know, Barlings and Dunhills and Sheratons and CBDs, Kamoi, all of those things. So he asked me if I'd come down and help him catalog these things and set up a newsletter, which he set up, and it was called The Pipesman. Huh. Uh, I, there may be a few issues of that still around, but it was pre you know, pretty well done. And it you know, preceded Barry by many, many years. Yeah. The only problem was that Bob Haywood was a little bit of a strange guy. <laughs> he was a member of Mensa Society, so he was extremely intelligent. But he was also amoral. <laughs> he had no compunction about doing anything, stealing anything that wasn't tied down, <laughs> you know, not for money, but for a joke, and just take it with him. He once walked out of a restaurant with his shirt full of knives, spoons, and forks. <laughs> and I thought, that guy is crazy. <laughs> and he was. But he was doing quite well as the pipesman, enough so that he quit his job and went full-time at this for about, I guess, three or four years. And then, <laughs> unfortunately, he wasn't much of a businessman, and he didn't believe in income taxes. Uh-oh. So he didn't file. <laughs> I didn't file any for three years. <laughs> and then one night he's sitting watching TV, and there's a knock on the door. He opens the door. There are two gentlemen there in suits with gold badges <laughs> saying we're with the Internal Revenue Service. Are you Robert Havens? And he said, yes. They said, you're under arrest for tax evasion. Please turn around and put your hands behind you. Oh, no. And off he went to jail. <laughs> and he stayed there for three days until he could work out a repayment program. And for the next, and he had to get a real job. <laughs> so that was the end of the pipesman. Unfortunately, because I did get a lot of nice pipes out of those that came in. And he did finally work his way out of trouble, I guess. And and then we kind of parted. He didn't do much more with pipes. And we will pause right here and take a break and be back in just a moment. Take a look at your pipe rack. Are all those briars and mirrors constant companions in your rotation? Or are there some that you gravitate to more than others? Are there some that you simply don't smoke anymore? Through SmokingPipes.com's estate trade program, you can transform those underused pipes into immediate cash or store credit. Just send us your pipes and we'll unpack, inspect, and evaluate them based on extensive market research and over 20 years of experience. Then, we'll contact you with a detailed offer for your choice of cash or store credit, valid on any items in our vast selection of pipes, tobacco, cigars, and accessories. If you're not happy with our quote, we'll return your pipes free of charge to domestic addresses. It's that simple. 
Join the thousands of Smoking Pipes customers who have benefited from this program and start your trade today by contacting us at 888-366-0345. That's 888-366-0345. We are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show and continuing the story times with Fred Janusik. The other guy I mentioned, Ed Jurkiewicz, many of you may know him as E. Andrew. Yep. He was the guy who made E. Andrew pipes. And when I met him, he was not yet a pipe maker. He was a machinist working for Allen Bradley Corporation in Milwaukee. Had a very, a very good job and five kids to support so he could use a little extra money he thought and why not do it why not do it making pipes as a side but he knew nothing about it so he went down to Jack Uly who was an expert pipe maker matter of fact he used to make them in the window of his shop I think for a while and but then got tired of it and set up another shop just to make pipes and hired some guys to do it and Ed went down and said, Jack, you know, I've been coming here for years, and I'd like to learn to make pipes. Can you help me out? And he said, sure. He says, I'll teach you how, but I'm not going to pay you. <laughs> he said, I'll pay you by giving you a small percent of what the pipes you make sell for. And if you're okay with that, we'll go ahead. And so Ed did. And he learned in about two years, two or three years, working there, because he already knew how to handle the machinery stuff from being a, uh, a machinist. He decided he was good enough to go out on his own, and so he bought equipment, the lathe and all the other saws, band saws, whatever, that he needed and set them up in the basement of his house and started making pipes. And... When he first started, he was okay. They, they, they weren't ugly <laughs> things at all, and they were relatively well-made, but nothing special, you know, billiards, apples, and things like that. And after a while, he started to branch out a little and make some prettier pipes, get some better briar, and make some nice straight grains and things like that, and started to make some money on it. Most of them he'd sell right at Uly's and then take them to the shows in uh, Chicago and Indianapolis and some of the other shows that were close by and, and try to sell them. But unfortunately, they never really caught on. And the reason being is that he refused to use hand, uh, handmade bits. And he just took and bought bits uh, and then re- <laughs> restructured them to fit the pipe. And a number of us told him over the years, matter of fact, Marty Pulvers and someone else and I got together uh, in the 2000, early 2000s, I guess, uh, because he has, his pipes were laid on the, out on the table and they were really nice looking pipes and they just weren't selling. And they just had cheap looking bits on them. Yeah. And we said, let's all go. You know, I said, I said, I'm afraid to go talk to him. That doesn't take <laughs> criticism real well. <laughs> I know that because I've mentioned things to him before. And so we'll, we'll all go and we'll tell him that, you know, Edward, we're doing this for you, not for us. You know, not because we want to buy any of your pipes cheaper or anything. But you really ought to think about hand cutting your bits. You could do so much better and they would look so much nicer if you did that. And he murmured something to us, I'll do it my way or something. And we walked away and said, well, we tried. And while we were walking away, he packed up his stuff and went home oh. and never came back again. Oh, no. And I think that was the last time we saw him at a show. Uh, I, I felt terrible about it, really. But we were just trying to help him. And it's a shame because the pipes were really nicely made but he just wouldn't hand cut a bit. So that's the way it went. He passed away a few years ago and I kind of lost contact with him, but he was a hell of a nice guy. Also super intelligent. Both he and his wife, Mary, were never had a chance to go to college with all the kids. 
but they read voraciously and were up on everything. And we always had a really good time when we went to their house or we had them over to our house, as long as we didn't talk about the bits on his pipes. <laughs> so that's another story from the early 70s when you know, Edwards had just opened their shop on Silver Spring Drive. Met a lot of neat guys there, too. Uh, none of them became pipe makers, though. <laughs> and then to move on into the 70s, in 1978, I decided to take my family to England, mainly because I wanted to visit all these pipe shops that I'd been <laughs> reading about for 10, 15, 20 years. And we decided to spend 10 days in London and the countryside the Cotswold villages and then over to Oxford and finally up to York and then back to London. So I could hit a lot of different things. And the first, you know, the first few days were spent in London downtown. And the first place I had to go was Freiburg and Trayer mm. because I was afraid it would go away after 250 years on the same spot. I didn't want it to be closed when I got there. And it wasn't. And I saw it. the interior was just like they described it in many books. The big, gigantic, uh, what would you call it, ceramic jars that had been sitting there for 100 years probably. And they'd worn the shelf off where <laughs> they'd been pulled down so many times. Uh. And the, the cigars and the pipes and everything. It was just wonderful to be there. And not far down the street was Sheraton, and I walked in there, and when I walked in and opened the door, all the walls were lined with Sheraton pipes. <sighs> so that was a real treat, just walking through and looking at pipes, and of course I bought one. <laughs> uh, it was a rather inexpensive, lower end, but it was a pretty after-hours pipe, which had that extension in the middle of the shank, kind of a yellow one that said after-hours. Yeah, and from there across the street was Astley's, who uh, was famous for their Meerschaum collection there, and and their and their tobaccos, and that's a very small, neat old shop. Now you walk in and you feel like you're walking a hundred years back in history. And not too far down the street was Dunhill, and across the street from them was Davidoff. So you could do all that in, in an hour if you wanted, probably, hit all those shops. And then from there, we walked out and down the street and went to the Burlington Arcade. The Burlington Arcade had uh, uh, Fox, J.J. Uh, Fox uh, pipes, which was specialized in barley. Um, Simmons. Simmons was... Uh, known for their tobaccos especially, which I later found out were Dunhill tobaccos with that pretty Simmons <laughs> label on them. <laughs> and there I made one of my grateful paws. I walked into Simmons, and there they had one of those rotating, uh, what do you call it, stand-on counters and go around and have things on them. Now they had K. Woody's on them. And I walked in, and I looked, and they've got their own brand. They've got some Sheraton's or Dunhill's or something in there. And then they've got the K. Woody's right up front there. And I looked at it and I said, K. Woody's? And I chuckled. <laughs> and the guy the guy took umbrage at that. He said, why are you laughing? I said, well, you know, K. Woody's are not extremely highly thought of in the U.S. And he said, well, these aren't U.S. K. Woody's. These are made in England, and they are very well thought of pipes here. I said, oh, I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> big mouth. <laughs> My big mouth. Huh. From there, I went down to J.J. Fox, which was downstairs, and then up and across the street to Peterson's shop. So in one day there, we hit, I don't know, like 10 fantastic pipe shops. And then from there, we went out into the countryside to stay in bed and breakfast. The first of which was in Burford, 
which, as it turns out, I believe is the town that had the castle that we happened to wander in through the back door. My son opened the door. There's a big gate, not, not a gate, not a fence, either a wall, a wall about 10 feet high. And then there was a gate, and the gate was left open. And he said, Dad, come here and look in here. He said, there's sheep grazing out there. And, a, and then there's a big house over there. <laughs> I said, well, how? That is a big house. That's not a house. That's a castle, I think. <laughs> and so he we said, well, why don't we walk in? Maybe we can pay and get a, you know, a, a trip through the place, you know, that it's a tourist attraction. Well, we walk up, and there's nobody there. <laughs> there's nobody anywhere that we could find. So we went up and actually peeked in the window to see if there was anybody inside. Maybe knock on the door and see if they would come and tell us what was going on. No one, no one there. So we finally said, well, maybe we shouldn't be here. <laughs> so we went back across the field with the sheep eating there and out the door. And so, yeah, I wonder what that was. Well, a few days later, I picked up a book on English castles. And I open up the book, and there in the middle of the book is Blenheim pa Palace. And I said, holy cow, look at this. This is where we were. And you know what it is? The birthplace of, uh, during the war, Churchill. Churchill. Winston Churchill's birthplace. Yeah. That's what we were sneaking around. <laughs> and they had a big moat in front and everything. And I said, we were lucky we didn't get shot for <laughs> trying to <laughs> trespass on Winston, Bur Winston Churchill's birthplace. <laughs> but that was kind of an interesting side trip. From there, we went on to Oxford, and we got out of the car and walked to ways, and there's Oxford College. And all of a sudden, all kinds of doors open up, and students run out dressed in their white gowns with their mortarboards on. <laughs> and they all assemble in the center of the commons there and throw their hats in the air. <laughs> and I said, wow, <laughs> graduation day at Oxford, <laughs> which I thought was really neat. And then we went across the street and walked down a ways, and then I see a sign sticking out of his shop that said, Savories. Oh. And I said, Loretta, oh, my God. <laughs> I remember reading about that in... Uh, one of the pipe books that I read about the guy who went to college at Oxford and how they used to come there and buy their pipes and especially look for straight grains because you were considered, you know, uh, I don't know, intelligent or wealthy or whatever, but by the straightness of the grain in your pipe. And this is back <laughs> in the 1920s probably. And there I was standing right in front of the place. And it was a very little shop. But when I walked in, they had a display case there with a dozen dunnels in it. And, of course, pipes with their own name on them. So I got to see Savory's, too. And from there, we went to Stratford-on-Avon to check out Shakespeare's house. And when we got out of the car and parked, we were downtown, and I look up, and there's Frederick Tranter, Pipesmith. Yeah. Son of a gun. So went in, looked around, and they had all the pipes there were uh, made for them by someone, and I never did find out who, but they were all stamped Frederick Tranter. So I had to buy one. I bought a little nose warmer, uh, kind of a pot apple, <laughs> and off we went to see Shakespeare's house. I thought it would be neat for my kids to do that. So when they got into high school and English lit class and were forced to study Shakespeare, they could at least say, well, I've been there. I was in that house. And they were. And it was fun. It was a pretty place. I don't remember if we walked down to Anne Hathaway's cottage or not. I'm, that doesn't stick out in my memory. And from there, it was on up to York. <laughs> a chance to see the York Minster, which is a 1,000-year-old church. It's been standing in that spot for a 1,000 years. And it's about it was, at that time, about time to fall over. And they were looking for people who would put a new foundation under it. 
<laughs> one of the guys, they tried to get do it, walked down there, took one look and said, get me out of here. <laughs> he said, I don't want to be down here. I don't want to be down here. Get me out of here. He said, this place could come down any minute. <laughs> so needless to say, he didn't get the job. <laughs> but they did have someone do it, and they did restore it. And so now I guess it's good for another thousand years. <laughs> and that is a beautiful city, a walled city. Uh, and it has a place called the Shambles with a street just wide enough for one small car that you can bring in to drop off your luggage if you're at a bed and breakfast down there. Otherwise, there's no traffic allowed inside the walls. Everywhere you go, you have to walk. If you have a car, you have to park it outside the walls. Huh. And that was a fun place to stay. I, I do have to ask you. Cause from there, it was back to London. Uh, a few more days there and hit a few of the pipe shops again and then flew back home. And that was all in 1978. The great Yuan Ri sale, where they bought the collection of a doctor who had been hoarding big Dunhills and small Dunhills and Sheraton and everything else for years with the idea of retiring and opening a pipe shop. But he died before that happened. And so his wife wanted to sell them and contacted Ewan Rees, who said, they were all unsmoked, too. <laughs> who said, sure, we'd be glad to sell them for you. Well, there were ungodly number of beautiful pipes, especially ODAs. And when collectors heard that they were there, they started flocking to the place to buy them. As a matter of fact, I heard that some of the California guys took out mortgages, second mortgages on their car, to get airfare and have money to buy pipes, to go to buy these pipes, <laughs> because they were selling them at ridiculously low prices. They were selling them because they were not, you know, new pipes. They were selling them at a markdown on what their usual UDA, ODAs went for, and they were worth a lot more than the ODAs they had. They were much beautiful, more beautiful blasts, and uh, coloring and stamping was all perfect. So after a while, they figured that out, that this is this is going a little too well, I'm getting too many people here, buying a lot. So they called Ed Lehman up, who was a famous Chicago collector and knew a lot about pipes, and asked him to come down and look at them. And he said, you guys don't know what you're doing. <laughs> and they said, well, do you? And he said, yes. They said, well, then why don't you take this desk and we'll get you a phone and you can come in and sit down anytime and call collectors and tell them what we have and give them the right price on it. And well, I don't know how they paid him, gave him pipes or what, but he had a job, <laughs> a temporary job at Ewan Rees for quite a time getting rid of that collection. <laughs> and I ended up going down, unfortunately, not the first day, but a week or two later and picking up some very nice pipes for my collection including one which would turn out to be something special years later on. And that was in the window, and it wasn't a Dunhill. It was a uh, uh, Tracy Mincer mm. custom-built. A custom-built pipe. It was a large, quite large, uh, umpaw shape with an owl carved on the bowl, not in the bowl. It stuck out from the bowl. I guess that's in relief or something. And it was cute and fairly well done. The owl was sitting on a branch and looking right at me <laughs> on the front of the pipe. And part of the reason it appealed to me is because my mother collected owl, uh, owl things, thimbles and dishes and stuff like that. She was always a fanatic on owls. So I thought this would you know, really give her a chuckle, and it did, and she loved it. And thereafter, whenever she came to my house, one of the first things she did was go in and check the owl pipe. So I never smoked it. I had it sitting on my table right next to my smoking chair, and it sat there for 22 years, unsmoked, <laughs> until she passed away in 2000. And then... I looked at it and said, you know, this is really not me. Uh, 
I think I really should get it into the hands of someone who's going to appreciate it. And I figured, you know, I paid, I think I paid a lot of money at that time, $35 for it. I thought I could probably get 75 out of it. And then I thought, or better yet, maybe I could give it away. And I knew just the person to give it away to. And back in the, going back into the earlier 70s, this is now we're in 2000, I was writing a lot of articles for Tom Gonzi Summers. And one of them was on custom-built pipes because I had picked up this custom-built pipe. And I, you know, I had done some research and written a letter to Tracy Menser, who was still alive at the time, who made custom-built pipes, and got information. Well, I wrote the letter for the ephemeris, and I didn't mention that I had a letter. I just quoted it, you know, went on and said some things. And the next issue, some guy comes up and says, that guy didn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> he says, I know a lot about custom-built pipes, and he doesn't know what he's talking about. And I thought, you idiot. <laughs> I don't say things unless I know what I'm talking about. So in the next issue, I sent a copy of the letter to Tom to publish and say, here are the facts. Uh, do what you want with them. And the next issue, he came out and apologized. <laughs> he said, I guess from now on I should shut my big mouth if I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but anyway, that letter was focused on by a guy named Bill Unger, mm. who then contacted me and asked me if I had any more information on custom-built pipes because he loved them and was thinking of writing a book on them. I said, well, I've got some stuff, and you're certainly welcome to it. And so I sent it to him, and, of course, he had a copy of the letter, and he went down and saw Tracy Mincer in Indianapolis, I believe, I got to talk to him a number of times and his wife when I think he passed away. But anyway, sooner or later, he came out with that book. And I think it was actually around the year 2000, which was when my mom died. And I thought to myself, I've got an idea. <laughs> it was that pipe that started me on custom belts and the letter to Tracy Menser which Bill then saw, which ended up in a book, which Bill sent me a copy of free, <laughs> thanking <laughs> me for my help in writing it. I said, in Chicago, I'm going to give him that pipe. So Chicago came. I walked up to his table and said, ever seen anything like this? He said, well, actually, yeah, I have. He says, I have one. It's pretty old and not in the greatest shape and uh, smoked. I said, well, this is the pipe that started it all. And <laughs> if you want, yours. He said, how much? I said, nothing. It's yours. And his jaw dropped and he got up, smiled, grabbed my arm and about shook it off, saying, wow, no, you're the greatest. I said, well, the circle's complete now. You got the <laughs> pipe, you got the letter, and you got the book. And you did a lot of work and it's well worth it seeing you happy. And as I walked away, I thought to myself, that's about as happy as I've seen one, I've seen someone, and it makes me feel really good. Yeah. A lot better than I would have felt if I sold it for $75. <laughs> and it was a much better home for it. And as it turned out, when he died, it became the border of the NASPC uh, journal that they put out every other month. And if you look back to the year that he died, you'll see that pipe uh, on the border and a little blurb inside about the fact that I had given it to him. So that was kind of fun. And that is where we will leave it for this episode. I had a lot of fun sitting down with Fred. So, uh, we'll take a break. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Jeremy Reeves, head blender of Cornell and Deal. We know pipe smoking is a personal journey. That's why our small team of blending and production experts take a personal approach in every step, preparing tobacco products just for you. 
We source top quality leaf through the personal connections we've made around the world, hand blend that leaf, and carefully package each tin. Each product, from special releases like our small batch line to our most popular mixtures like Autumn Evening, are made right here in South Carolina by professionals dedicated to providing the finest of smoking experiences. Lighting up a pipe is an exploration through evolving flavors, thoughts, memories, and even dreams. From our hands to yours, Cornell and Deal tobaccos are your passport for that voyage, provided by people who, like you, value the journey. This is Internet Radio. And we are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show. And again, more, uh, probably uh, another three episodes worth of stuff with Fred. And uh, some of it gets into detail of a trip. Anyway, lots of fun stuff coming up with uh, Story Times with Fred Janusik. For music this week, uh, Phil Kagey's got a new album out. It's called The Bucket List. And this one is called Midland Crisis. isn't uh 
perfect music to smoke a pipe to. I don't know what is. And of course, Phil Kagey smokes a pipe. Well, let's see what's in the mail. And again, a big thank you. I got a lot of mailbag comments and questions came in this week. Too many to get through in this episode, so we'll save some for next week. But uh, going back to last week with uh, me talking with Fred inside Fred's head. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. Judge for All says, another wonderful show, one of the highlights of my week. With spring and summer anniversaries and graduations coming up, I can't thank you all enough for turning me on to corncobpipe.com. It has literally become my go-to gift for ladies and gents. In the last few years, I've watched their online shop, their online site blossom with a wonderful gift selection. Just one suggestion for your sponsor, and that is gift wrap. Thanks again. We all appreciate your efforts on the fundraiser. Uh, thank you very much. And yeah, I love a good gift wrap because I hate gift wrapping. But uh, yeah, corncob pipes is graduation gifts. I like it. Uh, Gastro says. Not sure if this should go here, but I'm slowly working my way through the entire Pipes Magazine radio show catalog, and I've recently listened to the episode where you talked about your theme music. And yes, you have ruined Ozzy Osbourne for many of us metal listeners. I have an idea solution. Maybe come up with three different songs to use as intros, one for tobacco-related content, one for pipe-maker-related content, and one for more historical-seasoned smoker content. That way, everyone will know what kind of show they're in for. Mix up the tunes a little bit, and it'll give us a reason to love Ozzy again. (laughs) Now do the same thing about the Kid Rock at the end. Anyway, keep up the good work and do whatever the heck you like, and thanks for all the entertainment. (laughs) Uh, You're welcome. Thank you. And um, the timing of the intro works perfectly with that song, so I think we're kind of stuck with the music. Uh, there was a while back where I was thinking about changing the music and I just decided, you know what? Familiarity breeds content. So, or contempt, either one. Anyway, it's staying. Uh, Renfield says another great hour spent with a pipe and your show in the mailbag. Someone mentioned selling their McClellan stash to buy a Rolex. Personally, I'd get a Speedmaster, but I enjoy Mike and Mary's blends too much to sell off my hoard. I suppose I can think of each bowl I smoke as a tooth on a gear and not regret it at all. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah, and I'm not selling my hoard, but uh, thank you. And Virginia Piper says another great conversation between Fred and Brian. Thank you. You are welcome. And then finally, Dino says, uh, where is Dino's comment? I know I have it somewhere here and I've lost it there. <laughs> here it comes. Uh, Dino says, this was, as usual, a thoroughly entertaining show. I was in total agreement with the points you guys made with regard to the topic questions. I'm sure many of your seasoned listeners were also nodding in agreement. I think the newer listeners got another fine lesson on how to view this community and grow in their knowledge of the craft of pipe smoking. Harry Connick Jr.'s performance was one Mr. Porter would have liked, as I did. A big production, but it is a show tune. Uh, Your rant was right on. It's something I do on a regular basis, not just during election cycles. Thanks for another fun show, Dino. Dino, you're welcome. Hey, we'll see Dino in uh, a little bit over three weeks from now. All right, again, comments, questions, email me, brian at pipesmagazine.com, and I promise I'll uh, get them on the show or answer them, hopefully, on a timely basis. And uh, rant time is coming up next. There's nothing quite like a good book, or my genuine Missouri Meerschaum corncob pipe, an American legend since 1869. It's the coolest, smoothest pipe I've ever owned. See for yourself at corncobpipe.com. For over 150 years, Peterson has welcomed all pipe smokers. It's the preferred choice of the thinking man and the everyman alike, and our workshop too is a place of hospitality and warmth. Hi, I'm Glenn Whelan, and for me, Peterson is a family tradition I've known since my childhood. My dad, Tony Whelan Jr., worked at Peterson for 53 years and has been my home since 2003. From sweeping our factory on a Saturday morning, to managing our store, to now steering our international distribution, I've seen the craftsmanship poured into each Peterson pipe. 
It lives in Jason's discerning eye as he handcrafts our silver accents and in Wojciech's able hands as he carves our rustications. It abides in Willie's grading and in Warren's papering. Peterson has welcomed us as contributors to its legacy. And it's a welcome we always extend to you. Cade Mielefolge, 100,000 welcomes, wherever you come from, whosoever you be. to the story that I'm about to tell you and the and the moral to the story is be prepared. All right, here's what happened. The new computer which I've been using for several months now, well, I started to smell something funny and I thought, you know, maybe I got the vid or something. No, I started to smell something funny and it turned out it was the new computer. So I took it back to the place that I bought it and it's not a brand new one, it's a refurbished one cuz I'm cheap and well, I'm not cheap, I'm thrifty. Uh, it's a refurbished one. And I told them, you know, hey, here's what I'm smelling. And they opened it up, and sure enough, there was something wrong with the uh, uh, there was something wrong with the hard drive that was on it. It was a solid state hard drive. It was overheating, or something was wrong with it. So anyway, uh, in the process, I told them, I said, you know what? Let's let's expand. The, let's get a bigger hard drive in there and get the most current model possible, right? Well, there was a little tiny piece that they needed a special order to get the bigger hard drive in there, and they got that and went to put it in and they broke the little piece well that was two days that it took them to get that now the next time when they went back to order it again which was uh <laughs> this past saturday uh it's gonna take them three days to get it so the moral of the story here is just like i was prepared with a backup because i kept the old computer which i'm doing the show on now I was prepared with a backup. If you're ordering parts or you think you're going to have, you know, you should have that part in stock, order more than one. The parts are cheap. Always have a backup plan. All right. Always be prepared. Have something ready to go in case it breaks. You know, you don't sit around at home without uh, without a, extra light bulbs, do you? No. And we as pipe smokers, well, we've always got a backup pipe and tobacco ready to go, right? So anyway, moral of the story, be prepared. All right, remember uh, next week, big announcement, big, big, big announcement. So tune in for that. Uh, thank you all for all your messages, emails, and everything. JDRF auction items, please keep emailing me. We're a little short on those. Thank you to Fred Janusik for sitting down with me. Thank you all for tuning in. And until next time. the clouds when we're together just sing a song and think about sunny weather Say there's something kind of yeah about a kid that's never played baseball.